Welcome to Mad Influence. This is a podcast about how the marketing industry uses its influence on society. We all know that marketers can have a bad rep. Let's be honest, we're one of the least trusted professions in the world, ranking somewhere alongside politicians and journalists at the bottom of every poll from the last few years. But what about the people who use their positions of influence to spread positive messages, entertain the world or inspire social change? I'm Helen Saul, I work in brand marketing and I'm hosting this podcast so that I can speak to some of these people about our role in influencing culture and investigate how we can all use our power more for good. Today's guest is Katie Martell, speaker, writer, documentary maker and marketing expert. Katie started her varied and successful career in roles in a PR agency as a ghostwriter and eventually is the chief marketing officer of a startup. These positions set her up well for what she's most known for today, very honest and pertinent analysis of the marketing industry. Katie frequently starts conversations about what happens when marketing and social movements collide, something which will be covered in her upcoming documentary and book, Wokewashed. Katie's expertise has earned her a place in LinkedIn's top voices and marketing list three times, as well as being called an unapologetic marketing truth teller. Katie cares strongly about getting brands to act rather than just to talk about change. And in her own words, pandering to consumer values when your company doesn't walk the walk is a dangerous strategy. This is the age of sunlight. Consumers aren't stupid and they keep receipts. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And we should probably also say thank you to the mutual connection we have, which is Jean Kilborn, who set us up for this podcast. Jean is incredible. I think that everyone, if you don't know Jean Kilborn, must Google her immediately and read every book, watch every film she's ever made. (laughs) Totally agree. I'd love to understand your background and maybe what it was that sort of first led you into marketing as a career. And then from there, what kind of made you sort of change track slightly into what you do today? I don't I don't know if anyone wakes up like when they're young and dreams of like, mommy, I'm going to be an astronaut. Like I'm going to be a doctor. I don't know anyone who said like, I want to be in marketing. And maybe you did. I don't know. I don't mean to judge or anyone listening here. But for me, it was never like, a thing I wanted to do. I had this like aversion to the world of business. You know, I don't think I I woke up one day dreaming of being in marketing. Um, But my father always said to me, look, kid, you can talk a dog off a meat wagon. Like you've got to go into sales. You've got to go into marketing. You've got the gift of gab. You got to do something with it, which naturally made me want to go into music. You know, so I studied music and music education and trombone playing, which I thought would make me rich. Quickly realized it wouldn't and transferred into a marketing degree in college. And I'm very glad I did. It was definitely the right fit for kind of my skill set and also what interests me, which is very much how to influence people. The creative aspect of it always intrigued me. And I do have immense respect for the power of marketing. Who doesn't, right? We're all exposed to it every day. We cannot escape it. Part of me always liked to understand how all that worked. You know, like get into the hamster wheel, figure out how this, this, I I call it the world's most powerful industry. I think marketing moves industries, it moves companies, it moves people. It's a a powerful force, as powerful as politics, right? So for me, it was like, how do I make a living, have a little fun? Well, marketing's the funnest, you know, the most creative department in a business. Let's go into that. That that was how it all started. Um, I graduated the height of the last recession in 2009. And so no agency was hiring. So my Mad Men 
dreams of what marketing would be were like not gonna happen. But luckily, the software industry was booming, right? Cloud software was taking off, especially in the world of marketing technology. And so I actually got a job pretty accidentally. And what I mean, I, I mean like they found me on Twitter and they offered me a job. It was, it was a very strange time in 2009. Um, I joined a, a software company that was very small, but it marketed to marketers. It was selling software and services to business to business marketers. And I remember thinking, I don't know where this is gonna go, but I need a job, right? So I took that job and 12 years later, I've been marketing to marketers ever since. I've just been in, like you mentioned, in a PR firm, I've been in analyst firms. I had my own marketing tech startup as an entrepreneur and a founder. I call it my 18 month MBA. Highly recommend everyone listening who does not wanna go get an MBA, go start a company instead. You'll learn you know, every single day. You'll get pushed out of your comfort zone, but it's so worth it. Uh, and now for the past five years, I've been marketing essentially services, right? As a freelance consultant to other marketers still. And today I get to partner with brands like Adobe and Oracle, right? To elevate kind of like stories of how the marketing industry is changing. Uh, so that's kind of how I make money and how I've made money in marketing. Being a, a, a student of marketing the whole time, you, when you market to people like you, right? You've got to you've got to learn just constantly. And and that kind of gave me this excuse to kind of track the industry as it was, it is evolving and changing. And, and a, a few years ago, I got kind of bold in what I was putting out on the internet in terms of my critiques of the industry. And since then, it's turned into a whole nother practice for me, a whole nother passion project where I really am, uh, I believe we have to be a, a skeptic and a critic of what we do as much as we are a champion of it. And, you know, we like to give ourselves awards in marketing. There's a million award shows. We have to be as equally critical of what we do because it is very influential. It's a very powerful industry. I really agree. And, you know, that's the whole reason why I invited you on this podcast, because we talk a lot about the power that we have as marketers and how we can use it in the best way. And you really seem to be someone who is very happy to say it how it is. And, you know, I read out that quote in your intro about the fact that you've been called an unapologetic marketing truth teller. And I think from what I've seen, you are not afraid to call out when marketers are using like a social movement or a cause just to kind of further their own ends rather than to make actual genuine commitment. And that's something that I'm particularly interested in. And I wonder if you could maybe explain a bit about what it was that kind of made you really interested in talking about that specifically. I would love to talk about that. I've been talking about it now for years and it's it's it started as just this very, you know, I'm a woman, right? Um, I have a wife, so I'm part of the LGBTQ community. I'm also a marketer. And so we all have these lenses, right? By which we look at the world. So my lens through the world and the way I see other marketing is very much through those three lenses. I'm a practitioner as well as these other two identities. About five years ago, I was I was literally on my couch. This is not very academic or scientific. I'm on my couch watching TV. I see an ad and it was a very feminist ad. And by that, I mean, it, it carried this message of like female empowerment and you go girl. And I who knows what it was selling, probably deodorant at this point. But I remember thinking to myself at first, like, this is cool, right? This is different from the, uh, as you know, from talking to Jean Kilborn, the decades of history of ads being very kind of misogynistic towards women, right? Objectifying them, dehumanizing them. 
So it's a refreshing shift, I would say, but it got me interested in why companies were deploying this. My background in PR, you know, I know why companies are doing this. It's it's hot. It's it's the it's the popular narrative. It's it's you know, you're trying to align yourselves with where public opinion is and where public opinion is going. And around this time, 2016, think about US elections around this time, right? It, it very much was uh, a, a hot issue, right? The very as, as as it is today, very divided country. And so a lot of 2014, 15, 16, 17, a lot of advertisers were leveraging feminism in ads. So I had seen one on my couch that night. And I remember seeing another the next day and another and another and thinking, okay, something's going on here and, and feeling a sense of unease. Like my gut was yelling at me. It was like, girl, something's weird about this. So I started to look into it. I started to research a few of these companies, um, again, just kind of innocuously learning about some of the brands behind these campaigns. And some are like Super Bowl campaigns. We're talking big, big, big money, right? And of course, I found a million examples of companies that were not living up to the values of those campaigns. Things from the top of the organization down, such as uh, you know, lack of female representation on the board, lack of, of a very low amount of women on the executive team, right? Public reporting data. But I also found some really sinister examples of firms using really positive like metaphors like breaking the glass ceiling, right? In an ad, same firms actually being, uh, and this is public, you can Google this, accused of, of things like pregnancy discrimination and rampant discrimination against women in the firm and, and penalizing women for taking maternity leave. I mean, the absolute worst way you can treat women was happening at the same firms that were really trying to co-opt the popularity of the women's rights movement at this time, and, and it still happens today, that disconnect to me started to be like a giant red flag. And I was like, oh, okay. Not that I'm surprised by it, but I started to think about what the impact would be. Like, what is the impact if companies fail to live up to the ideals of their ads and if you really peel back this layer, there's this onion, you know, there's layers and layers to it. Companies now do this uh, alignment thing with social movements. And it, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an urge to be relevant. It's, an, it's, a, it's an, a, a way to earn trust, get a lot of earned media. Um, it's a really popular strategy, but they do it with LGBTQ, right? Pride Month in June, you see rainbows, which, you know, logos everywhere. Um, of course, last year with the Black Lives Matter protests, every company in their mom was tweeting a black square and some other, you know, statements. We've seen it for years with the environmental movement and sustainability, but I'd say right now, 2021, it's really come to a crescendo. More companies than ever are using these ads, using these ideals in their ads, and I'd say are more under scrutiny than ever before. So for me, I started to write about it a few years ago, started to speak about it, and it's evolved into a work uh, that is looking at the impact of when companies get woke, <laughs> who's doing it well, who's aligning themselves to the movements, who's pandering, and what is the impact? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is such an interesting topic of discussion because yes like everything that you said is true in that like there are many brands that kind of co-opt a movement for their own benefit and their own gain and yet at the same time all of those movements have value and are really important things that need a platform and could probably benefit from a brand or organization that has the power to change culture so i wonder what is your perspective in terms of the best possible way to approach this and I'm thinking particularly from a marketing perspective, something that we see very commonly is 
were often presented with like a day of a year or a month where suddenly like every single brand has something that they do for this one day and then the rest of the year it seems that they kind of have forgot about it so I wonder what your view is in terms of making sure that it's more of a long-term thing and genuinely aligns with the brand and isn't just sort of plucked out of thin air to make them look good I love it. You're so right. It is It is so, I mean, as a PR practitioner, right, long history in PR, we operate by calendar days. It's how we plan campaigns. It's how we organize our plans. There's a launch coming, you work backwards three months, there's your plan. Social movements are not these nice square boxes that fit into a marketing process. Social movements ask for, I think, the antithesis of what marketing is, which is very much selling an aspirational state of being. It's driving people towards an outcome that benefits the company. What social movements are asking for is attention, right, to be given to a problem affecting a part of society, right? These are very, like, giant, meaningful, important, necessary movements that marketing campaigns and calendars try to kind of fit into what works for the business. There's the first kind of your question, how do you address it? The first kind of answer is that we can't be the ones to address it in marketing. (laughs) And I know that's like not convenient. Most brands look at these movements as a marketing opportunity, and then they try to work their way back into allyship. Instead, the movements are asking for brands to become allies first, And then I think there's some what's called permission to play, permission to use that campaign in in their ads. Um, There's increasing pressure from the the world of consumers for brands to really stand up for these movements. So I understand where marketers come from on this. Um, There's a great study from Edelman. uh, It's called the Trust Barometer. You can Google it. They do it every year. It's like my favorite research report because I'm a nerd. And uh, it shows that a majority of buyers believe brands can be a powerful force for change. And they expect them to represent them and solve societal problems. And here's the really important part. Brands know this too. They say, my wallet is my vote, right? So brands are looking at these kinds of, you know, changing consumer behaviors. And they're saying, we want to align ourselves with that. We need to stand for something. Hurry up and issue a campaign so buyers think that we're with them on this issue. I don't blame companies for doing that. That's what marketing does, right? We sell a vision. We sell a kind of north star for the company to align to, and we sell away, uh, you know, values for for consumers to align with, so that we can say, hey, we're on the same team. Come with us. We believe the same things. The problem is we're kind of missing the point as marketers. We're missing. I think we have to stop. Think about what is what are the social movements that these brands are now starting to represent? What are they really asking us for? They're asking for real allyship. That is not the same as a marketing campaign. They're asking for difficult conversations internally. They're asking companies to look inward first and say, how do we as a business, who might might employ thousands of people? I mean, some companies are bigger than, than, uh, some multinational companies are bigger than some countries. How do those companies affect change is what the movements are asking for us to do. And those answers are a little more complicated. They're things like, well, maybe you can close the gender pay gap internally. Maybe you can start to look at your own internal biases around racism and discrimination. Look at the way that your supply chain is disproportionately impacting communities. Who are you excluding from your marketing, your supply chain, everything? And those conversations are harder. They're not as sexy. Marketers don't love that because we can't, you know, turn that into a cute Super Bowl ad or go viral for, you know, a tweet on. And uh, I think for some, 
for many marketers, that's that's the where the conversation ends. They feel like they don't yeah. have any power. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a good point because ultimately marketing is about communicating something that already exists. So like your product that is already in existence. So you might have someone come to you and say, oh, we want to talk about like this topic X, Y, Z. But if you feel like it doesn't relate to your actual product or your company values as it stands, that's where you're presented with a problem. And I think you made a good point when you said that it's not necessarily always the job of marketing. It's like much wider than that. And it's about a whole company culture. And, you know, I sometimes think maybe it's particularly a challenge for companies that have been around for a long time, because at least if you're a new company, you can kind of set your values from scratch. But I wonder if you're a company that's been around for like many years, and you've already got these systems in place that don't quite work, then I think that you face some struggles. And I wonder, is it that you think there should be specific people within a company that make it their job to check that the company is operating in a fair and just way? Or is it that people should be employing consultants to help them with these questions? Is it that it has to come from the leader? Like, I think there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. And I'm wondering what your perspective is. It's a, it's a, it's the right question to ask. Right. I mean, that's the right question to ask is, is who's responsible for making sure that a company lives up to the values that it's portraying in ads? I think, obviously, it, it does start with the top. It does start with company values, which obviously cascade down through an organization. But this is where marketing does have power. We've seen over the past, I'd say, decade plus, two decades. What year is it? 2020. So, yeah, two decades or so. Marketing as a, as a function has earned a lot more of a strategic place in a business, right? It used to kind of be seen as the you know, client, John Miller from uh, Marketo and then Engageo, now Demandbase. And he always said marketing was like the arts and crafts department. They were just seen as the people that threw parties and put logos on pens and made brochures. And, and the marketing technology industry has worked really hard to make that marketer much more strategic, much more a valued member. Um, very few boards, for example, have people on in that understand marketing. So it's one of those professions that everyone sees all day so they kind of think that they know everything about it no one looks at finance and says that but marketing everyone's an expert right and so my point in this is that marketing has worked really hard to earn a more strategic more respect more trust from their c-level colleagues so i think 2021 presents marketing leaders and i'm talking cmos i'm talking the people at the big guys at the top with an opportunity to be that voice of reason, that litmus test, that that person internally that says, hold on, I know we want to align ourselves with the Black Lives Matter movement, because if we don't say anything, we're going to look like we don't support, you know, this community. But the good marketers, to your point, you said marketing is supposed to promote things that already exist in a company. Yeah, in theory. <laughs> in theory. I spent a lot of time at startups. And let me tell you, we sell a dream, my friend, and the product catches up to it, right? That happens. It's always a gap between the aspirational state of being in the reality. When it comes to social movements, and this is the difference, these gaps need to be addressed before a brand leverages the campaign. It's that simple. So to your point, who helps marketers with this? A lot of times this is a great place to bring in those DEI consultants, those people that you see all over the news now that are just you know helping companies understand their own internal biases. Good marketers understand there's a risk in being exposed for being hypocrites, basically. Um, good marketers understand that there is power in aligning your brand to these movements when you can demonstrate it through actions, when you can be transparent about your shortcomings. Good brands know that honesty 
is longevity, right? And and the ones that are trying to capitalize on the movements are looking very much for these like short-term lifts. The ones that are doing it right are doing that work to look internally and then use that out in the world or are the ones that have already looked internally and said, okay, yeah, we're good. Like we, we know we've got this, let's go ahead and show the world. You, you understand. Yeah, definitely. And you know, when you're just saying then about uh, the gap that needs to be addressed, and obviously I agree with you. <laughs> However, at the same time, I'm just trying to think about it in a, a tangible context. And I'm thinking about, say like, it's very easy for a CMO to have the power to say, okay, this is wrong, like let's address this gap. But I wonder if you're in a company where you're already operating in that sphere that you mentioned, where you're in a space where you sometimes are communicating messages that where the product hasn't necessarily caught up and you're already doing that. And then you're a really junior member of the team, say you're someone that's just started out and you recognize, oh, hang on a minute, like what we're doing, I don't think it quite aligns. Like there seems to be a bit of a gap between what we're saying and what we're doing. What would your advice there be for a junior member of the team? Do you think that they have the power to address that or what would you say to them? I'm looking right now uh, for this. The, I want to get the stat right, but in America right now, four in ten American workers consider themselves social activists, and I think that this this opportunity really exists for for talented employees to to you know how employ uh, consumers are voting with their wallet. There's this idea that you can kind of vote with your talent, you know, and I think I think this is one of the reasons a lot of companies are entering these these social movements arenas that they maybe haven't historically, not just for marketing reasons, but also for recruitment, you know, uh, acquisition, as well as retention. Employees want to work places that they believe in, that kind of match their values, if they have that privilege to do so, right? Some people, I listen, in America, we need work to have healthcare. So not everyone can rock the boat. But if you are able, if you have somebody who is in demand, if you have a talent that is, you know, rare, you can use your talent for good. You can use your kind of skill set to say, look, I'm going to um, work to make the company I work for reflect the attitudes and opinions, not necessarily political beliefs, but more just kind of like the human rights <laughs> beliefs of the, the employees that are here. So a lot of, of brands have seen really powerful employee activism over the past couple of years, and we're seeing it more and more. Things like, you know, when Amazon, like bigger companies like Amazon or Google or Salesforce are deploying software to either maybe the Customs and Border Patrol um, here in the US, which is facing a lot of scrutiny around their treatment of, of migrants, um, or use of, of facial recognition software by the Pentagon, you know, things that are a little bit sketchy. <laughs> Employees are seeing their power in collective action to actually protest those company decisions, forcing higher up executives at the company to really, you know, examine those. You have open letters, you have what do you call it, petitions. There's a lot happening internally at firms for employees to call out their own brands for the hypocritical statements. I think that's the future. I don't see that going away. I see it happening more and more. And it's also aligned with consumer activism. Um, I mentioned Sleeping Giants before we hit record. If anyone doesn't know who they are, they're a kind of a collective consumer activism group, right? And all they do is they basically alert they allow consumers to help brands identify when they're advertising on sites that fund misinformation, hate speech, things like that. And all they do is a simple Twitter campaign, right? It's like, hey, tag the brand. Did you know that your ads are appearing programmatically on these sites? And it, the brand doesn't know. If the site wasn't blacklisted, they kind of just give their ads out to the ad exchanges, bam. 
ads are appearing and they're actually funding some really awful, awful um, sites. And so this kind of small group, very small group, started by two people, by the way, um, of marketers are, are leveraging that kind of social media, the age of sunlight, the age of accountability, the, the cancel culture we all like to hear, you know, complain about. They're leveraging that for good. They're actually leveraged. They actually got Sleeping Giants got about 4,000 companies to stop advertising on one of the most egregious examples of, of this here in the US. Um, they also got companies like PayPal to stop allowing hate groups like the KKK to fundraise on its platform. They're, they're really, it's this kind of combination of employee and consumer activism that if you can find a, an avenue for it, and it's gonna be dependent upon your situation and your company, it's a really powerful way to hold brands accountable to some of the values that they the employees want them to be accountable for or that the brand is claiming to be accountable for in its ads. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it would be good as well maybe if, we could understand like some tangible examples of this so if there's any brands in particular that you think either well first of all the ones that are, are not doing it well the ones that are doing what you might determine to be like woke washing versus the brands who are actually really you know doing all of those things that you said before about like examining themselves internally and making sure they're making the change before they do any communication I have great examples. I have bad examples. This is a spectrum of behavior. That's kind of what the film and the book is looking to document, right? It's it's kind of saying, look, there's two choices for brands. You can either you can either co-op these movements, or you can join them. Essentially, you can be part of the change. You can exploit them, or you can empower them. There's really no in between. There's a great saying that I always always say in my talks, which is the only thing you find in the middle of the road is roadkill. Advertisers know that you've got to get people to, to feel something, right? To believe something. And that means taking a stand about something. So the most, I think, positive examples of this uh, really came in 2020 for me. There are some brands that like live this to their core, Patagonia, REI, Ben & Jerry's. We hear all the time. And actually, Ben & Jerry's is in my film. And let me, this quick side note here, Ben & Jerry's has a full-time paid department of activism. They have a global head of activism. He's in my film, Christopher Miller. And they are separate from the marketing team, but they leverage the resources of marketing, right? So they've got like a counterpart in marketing that will approve things like billboards and Colin Kaepernick social justice campaign. Um, it's really an interesting like partnership between activism and marketing. Now, Ben and Jerry's is owned by Unilever. And part of the agreement of selling the company to Unilever from Ben and Jerry, <laughs> as, as if they're my buddies, like first name basis, was to allow them to operate with an independent board of directors. And this board of directors is very activism minded. So there's companies like Ben and Jerry's who are like in their own, you know, class of socially conscious, progressive social justice at their core. Most companies are not going <laughs> to go there. But Unilever is starting to adopt more purpose into the branding, more purpose driven campaigns because of the success of Ben and Jerry's. Um, but it isn't the same. It isn't that activism at its core. On the other end are companies like uh, one of the biggest examples and I, I alluded to it earlier was KPMG one of the big four accounting firms, right? And a firm that also supports the um, uh, women's golf tournament. They're kind of the you know, headline sponsors of them. And they came out with this great campaign. It was the next generation of women leaders and it featured Phil Mickelson, who's a professional golfer and Stacey Lewis, who's a female professional golfer. Uh, this is like 2007 when this aired, uh, maybe beforehand, but it was that glass ceiling metaphor. You can kind of Google this ad and you'll see like this, you know, she tees off and then the golf ball goes up and then all the glass ceiling breaks in the courtroom and the lab and all that, you know, the boardroom. It's like, great. The tagline is here's to breaking more glass ceilings in golf and everywhere else. 
And this is a cool ad, right? Like KPMG, go women. I love it. KPMG is also the subject as this campaign is running of a $400 million class action lawsuit. Over a thousand women spoke up and, and, and uh, about KPMG denying promotions to women, penalizing them for taking maternity leave, uh, and, just, and just all other examples. Of the, and this is just publicly available information. So you see this gap. Most people who watch that ad are not going to look at that. They're not going to go looking for reasons to, to see that gap. Um, but we also see it in, in historical context. Dove, you're familiar with the Campaign for Real Beauty, all of the beautiful kind of ads that challenge the norms and the narratives around women. Um, you know, the, they had a, a really famous Photoshop ad that came out where they showed a woman photoshopped into what is eventually the billboard ad. Dove, you know, during the Campaign for Real Beauty, when it really started back in 2004, Think about 2004. Where were you in 2004? I was in high school. And we were, I remember seeing these Dove campaigns. I mean, like, this is this is great, feminist campaigns. I also remember that Dove, the same parent company, Unilever, owned Axe body spray at the time. Do you remember the old Axe body spray ads? We we call it Lynx in the UK. It's the same brand, though. There you go. And, and I don't know if Lynx had the same kind of misogynistic, panty-dropping, you know, women just throwing themselves over men, the guys would spray themselves with these with this terrible, you know, smelly body spray, and the women would just jump on them, would just absolutely throw themselves at men. Women were nothing but sexual objects in these ads. Unilever owned both companies at the time, so Axe or Lynx, and Dove. So there's like a there's like a girl saying, "I am beautiful because I'm happy on the inside," right next to like a penny dropping. Right, same company, conflicting stories. Purpose, of course, is not purpose in that regard. It's pandering, and these examples are. Hundred, I have hundreds of them. And there's plenty of examples of companies who issued a, a statement around Black Lives Matter back last year. We stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and people called them out on Twitter. I'll give you an example. The Met Opera, you know, here in the U.S., they, they tweeted something like, there's no place for racism in New York City or the arts. And, and we stand with, and all of it was in memory of George Floyd. Like they really put out a statement in support and somebody just tweeted and retweeted them and, and said, well, the Met has never performed the work of a black composer. So thanks, thanks for playing, right? But there's all these examples of statement versus action that right now is really coming to a crescendo and under the spotlight. And you name the social movement, it can be the environmental, you know, sustainability. It could be, like I said, LGBTQ. It is unbelievable how many companies I think missed the point. Start. Fix internally first. Figure out the, the, the best way that you can contribute to a movement first, then figure out how it fits into your marketing calendar. Absolutely. I, I wonder, do you, do you think that there's a danger that some companies might see these examples of the companies that are being called out for hypocrisy and instead of reacting by thinking, oh, okay, I don't want to be hypocritical. I'm going to you know, make sure I evaluate my own kind of internal structures their reaction might be, oh, well, maybe we should just not act at all. And then they'll just do the opposite and just kind of sit there and not make any change, but also not say anything either and think, oh, well, this is the safest option if we just sit on the fence. This might be a controversial statement, but I would be fine in a world without feminist advertising. I would be fine in a world without companies switching their logo for Pride Month. I would feel absolutely fine if all of this woke marketing went away. And here's why. I think that it's it carries a, a lot of risks that marketers, A, are not thinking about, but B, just will never see, right? So we think in the world of brand risk as marketers. And, and to your point, the, the cancel culture, right, the, the age of accountability, being called out, right, on any platform for anything, 
it's starting to keep companies in this in this kind of um, reactionary lane of like, we don't want to piss people off. But there are many companies out there that demonstrate that standing for something is a long-term play. Good brands stand for something. It doesn't have to be like, you know, Black Lives Matter. It can be like software on-premise is bad. Like standing for something aligns, allows people to understand where you are in the world, what you believe in and how they should engage with you. And I think that every brand knows that. So, you know, a brand that stands for nothing will soon be irrelevant. So there is no option to, to suddenly not stand for anything, right? I think companies need to figure out what they stand for in, in more authentic ways beyond social movements first, right? Then understand where they fit into these kind of social movement, you know, narratives. The, the, the risks, I think, if they do nothing, they look like they're they're supporting the oppressor, right? What is that phrase about, you know, silence and, you know, the oppressor. But the issue here is that employees, consumers, and now the, the general world has created a new standard. We've actually backed ourselves into a corner in this. You could not go on to Twitter in, in June of last year without seeing something about the pandemic, how we're here for you and our essential workers. Uh, we support gay people and Black Lives Matter. It was like, because these narratives were all converging at once, every company said something. And I think now the standard is this. The standard is that you'll have to say something. Five, 10 years ago, that standard didn't exist. And it was kind of novel for a company like a Dove, et cetera, to be outspoken. So let's get real. It's now this new normal. I believe we need kind of new rules of engagement. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing as a marketer. I've got a bunch of followers that are marketers and I tweet about it and share everything from digital transformation to customer experience. But in part of this is like me trying to sneak in like, oh, hey, also social movements need you to be allies. It's, it's like this, you want to, people want genuinely to do the right thing. This is not something people learn. There's, there's no course on how to be a good corporate ally to a social movement. This is happening in real time. And we're watching companies stumble. We're watching other companies succeed. And now we're trying to, and this is where I'm trying to do is document the difference and figure out how we can all evolve together towards a better, better way forward. But most marketers are not thinking about the impact of being performative. They are not looking at the fact that you can be, you're really exploiting. And I'd love to, if you're open to, I'd love to dig into like my, the impacts of being performative. It actually does ha carry some real risk. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love it if you could, yeah, explain a bit about what are the negative impacts when a brand is performative and isn't actually genuine. Obviously brand risk. We, we know that. Like we all on this, on this pot, if you're listening to this, you understand that there's risk in getting called out. Um, but I also think we have to look at the fact that what we're doing as marketers is setting a very dangerous precedent. We're setting a precedent that the work of these social movements can be reduced down to a hashtag, hashtag activism, right? The real work is a lot harder. We know that. We're also exploiting a movement that we don't fully understand. If you look at the LGBTQ movement, people have been shot, murdered, right? For the opportunity that we now have to have the freedoms that we have. And even then it's under attack in this country and, and around the world. In many countries, still illegal to be gay. The fight for LGBTQ equality is not a campaign. It's, it's, it's a movement for actual human rights. And yet, brands barge in without understanding its history, its meaning, and how they can really help the movements. The third risk is that we're creating this illusion of progress. It, there's some phrase for it where by virtue of demonstrating support publicly, brands actually think they don't have to do anything else. Like we've got the platform, we've done the work, we've raised awareness of an issue, we're done, right? That is a very dangerous illusion 
that they've done the work and consumers also believe that they've done the work. There's a great um, stat from Time Magazine that's like half of men just don't believe the pay gap exists and they see a workplace that is far more equitable, right? Feminist ads don't help that cause. They make it look like the world's a lot more equitable than it really is. And this is uh, this is actually a, coming at a point where trust in every major cultural institution in this country and around the world, I'm talking about media, business, government, nonprofits, all of it, trust is at an all-time low. Businesses are actually being looked to, to to be the stewards of, you know, competence in this country and and I think that's dangerous. But increasingly, the onus is being put on business to carry us forward, to actually create societal change. That's dangerous, right? Because no business works in a moral interest. Businesses work to make money. So it's a dangerous, re I guess, diversion of trust. Um, it also, of course, there's one more thing of, about uh, lobbying. So if we are, um, there's a, there was a lot of companies that, you know, tweeted support to Black Lives Matter last year who also donated to politicians in the US that are just terrible for racial equality. And the consumers, they don't know that. They see the tweet, they see the black square, and they think this is great. They don't see the millions of dollars being funneled to politicians working against these causes. So all of these performative allyship ads cover and, and shield that from public scrutiny uh, and from transparency. And all of this adds up to actually harming these movements more than we're helping. I think it's really interesting one thing that you said there and it was about the illusion of progress and how it can be harmful and it kind of reminds me of something I've read recently and it's about employers as brands and it's about the concept that there are many employers who are trying to attract a workplace which is say more reflective of society. And so in doing this, what they do is they will uh, have advertising that shows like, say they have like one employee who is, I don't know, from a particular background that's different to everybody else. They'll put that in their marketing. And the articles that I've read in this are saying like, this is actually quite unhelpful because then the people in the company that are, if there's only a few people of like one particular category in the company, they will feel other people around them will feel like, oh, but we are really inclusive because I've seen this imagery and I've seen this stuff going on and kind of not realizing that, no, there's still issues there. So I wonder how do you think the best way to get a balance is if you're a company that's trying to improve recruitment of a more diverse workforce or more inclusive workforce and at the same time not be projecting an image that isn't accurate? That's a tricky balance. I think it is it's a bit tokenistic, right, to leverage someone just because they fit that category. It is, but it's a catch twenty two because you also want to demonstrate that you outwardly support communities that you may not have enough of internally. It, I'm not a recruiter; I'm a marketer. Uh, all I can say is um, it does create that bait and switch. It's like advertising a product that doesn't have all the features that you sign up for, setting a contract, and realizing that you bought, you know, a dud. It's the same thing for the employee experience. Um, I don't have any advice for uh, recruitment here. I'm, I'm purely in marketing. But that gap, that illusion, right, is dangerous. It does create the illusion that society or your company um, is more progressive than it truly is. And that just never ends up well. This is about doing the work to, to increase that internal look at the barriers that you've created systemically. It could be the internal biases, the hiring process, all of that. The same applies to marketing. It's the same, same conversation. Look internally, do the work, have the awkward conversation about why we don't have enough people of color or whatever it is that you're trying to improve and figure that out. It's a policy and a process answer. It is not a tokenistic, performative 
visual representation answer. That does not fix the problem. Yeah, definitely. I really agree. Um, we're getting really close to the end of our time together. So I'd just like to finish on a final few questions that I ask everybody. My first question is, over the past year, do you have a favorite campaign that you can call out for being good within the marketing world? I would love to highlight Rent the Runway. Are you familiar with that in the UK? Yeah, the, the rental service of designer gowns and stuff. I thought it was a, a reality TV program, so <laughs> no. Rent, Rent the Runway is a great, it's a great company here. And it, um, it, Jennifer Hyman is a CEO and co-founder and they basically allow people to rent, you know, Oscar de la Renta gowns. And it's like, I'm not going to afford it, but for my wedding that I'm going to, I'm going to go and rent these designer gowns. Um, when the Black Lives Matter protests happened and every company issued their like performative BS statements, um, I was rolling my eyes at every one of them. Jennifer Hyman's was phenomenal. She took a stand. She very much put out the statement that was like, yeah, we got to do better in the fashion industry. We also got to do better at my company. Um, she very much stated that they what they believe, which I, I think the most powerful two words in the English language are, you know, we believe. Because it really does elevate the conversation away from what's wrong to what could be. So she says, look, we believe that supporting black designers and black fashion and uh, black talent is in our financial and our moral you know, obligation. She was really clear about the fact that like, we do not exist to be moral, we exist to make money. Um, but then she allocated some real actions behind it, including like hiring more black talent for the photo shoots, getting more black designers onto the platform, um, donating to organizations to combat racial injustice, but um, pledging like a, a very clear amount and that to me just showed that, look, this is a company that understands that the movement was asking companies to look inward and the consumer base that asked for companies to be more active in this in this movement were asking for real actions and commitments, not performative black squares. So shout out to Jennifer Hyman, CEO, co-founder of Red the Runway. That was great. I think that's a really good example. Um, final question for you is just, if you could go back in time and give some advice to your younger self when you were starting your career in marketing, what do you think you would tell her? It's a great question. I think the best decisions I've made in my career may not have looked correct, right, to the outside world. I did a lot of job hopping. I did a lot of kind of short stints at firms and, and took a few different leaps. And Looking back, none of it was, was quote unquote wrong, you know, and I think when you're young, when you're starting out, it doesn't, your career needs, you feel like it has to look like someone else's and, and it does to an extent, but the world is such a diverse and, and such a fast changing place that um, my advice for anyone who's just kind of getting into this world is listen to your gut, listen to your gut, listen to your gut, listen to your gut and, and learn to hone that over time because really your instincts, even if they run counter, like if your opinions run counter to like what you're seeing, Great disruptive startups know that that's a good thing, that friction is a good thing. Great growth comes from that. We have to identify moments of friction in the world. This is a great example of the, the woke washed film and book. It's, it's, it's touching on, it's poking at this like really uncomfortable topic, but it's doing so so that we can t look at it, examine it, figure it out and move forward together. I call them exceptional truths. Go for the things, talk about the things, explore the things that, you're, that everyone's talking about, but no one uh, is thinking, but no one is saying out loud. Because there's real power in those statements. And, and, and you really, if you know marketing, you know how to change people and to change behavior. That's a very powerful power. As you, as you know with this podcast, it's a very powerful skill. And so when you hone it, when you figure it out, and if you're lucky like me to have built a platform where people are listening to what you have to say, 
go change the world. Do it for some good. Be like Jean Kilborn. I think that's such good advice to end on. So thank you so much. If uh, people want to find you and get in touch with you, where would you like to send them? I send a newsletter every week or so. It's called the world's best newsletter. Um, it's just at my website, katie-martel.com. It's also where you can learn about the upcoming film and book, which is called Wokewashed, <laughs> the collision of, of social movements and marketing, um, which will be out as soon as I finish it. So <laughs> soon. <laughs> well, I'm very, uh, very excited for when that does come out. And yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed having you here. Helen, thank you for making this podcast happen. I know it was a kind of a pandemic project, but um, these conversations matter and I really do appreciate it. So kudos to you. I'm leaving you five stars. Everyone go rate, subscribe. Everyone go like this. It really does help. <laughs> that would be great. You've just done my job for me. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Helen. I appreciate it. You've just been listening to an episode of Mad Influence. This episode was recorded remotely with music by Joseph McDade. Thank you so much to everyone who's reached out with positive feedback recently. If you do get a chance, it would mean a lot if you can please subscribe, rate and review the podcast as this will really help it to grow.